With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. It's fair to say I might not be speaking to you now were it not for this week's guest. That's because I started to think about how underrated movie music is when I saw Clint Mansell performing his film scores at the Largo in Los Angeles back in 2012. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, the podcast in which we explore the music of cinema and television. After his band, Pop Will Eat Itself, disbanded in 1996, Clint was introduced to the business when Darren Aronofsky asked him to score Pi. The pair have collaborated several times since as part of a total body of work comprising of around 50 films. During the course of our conversation, you'll hear extended extracts of Clint's work on High Rise, Moon, Pi, Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream. But we begin in the iconic venue in which this interview took place, Air Studios in London, with the main theme from the very first score he recorded there, namely The Hole. This is a bit of a, an amazing situation. I'm sat in Air Studios in front of what looks like a spaceship control <laughs> setting with Clint Mansell. Clint, thank you so much for your time and for inviting us here into Air to do this as well. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm always happy to spend time at Air anytime. <laughs> what have you done here? Well, I mean... A lot. A lot of stuff. First, <laughs> the first thing I did here was in 1999 and I did a film called The Hole that uh, yeah. starred Kira Knightley. And um, I was living in New Orleans at the time and it was my third film I think we had actually done uh, Requiem at Skywalker and I'd learnt a lot there but coming here Chris Barrett who's like you know one of the guys who's still here me, I, I just didn't really know what I was doing in those days you know so me and Ian had to sit up I got here at like some about 6 o'clock in the night and we stayed up till like 6 o'clock the next morning putting a click on every track that I'd done because I didn't know you had to do that you know and <laughs> so that's the thing I love about air it's like and also as well in fairness what I've found in general with the musicians and this side of it is like nobody's judgmental of like oh you don't know how to do this all they're interested in is have you got some good ideas you know so this has always been like a really inviting and comfortable place for me
Yeah, we did the whole here, some of the fountain. I did up at Mogwai's place in Scotland at the Castle of Doom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moon we actually did in LA because we had no money, so I couldn't come over here then. But we did Black Swan here. And we did Loving Vincent here recently, you know. We did Ghost in the Shell here. Pretty much everything I've done is usually either done here, if I haven't done it here. I mean, High Rise, for instance, we actually did in Belgium because there was a sort of tax break with some of the yeah. investments, things like yeah. that, you know. But my first choice, if anybody ever asked me, is like, OK, we'll go to air, you know. I love it here. People don't know, you know, this was all put together by George Martin, you know, and it's a converted church. The acoustics in that room are fantastic. You know, you can make four players sound like 40 almost, you know. In some rooms, you make 40 sound like four. So yeah. it is a real special place, and then the ceiling comes down. And, that. and You know, obviously in London, you've got Abbey Road as well, which is a great space, but I guess I just sort of feel at home here, you know. And feeling comfortable is paramount to anything I do, you know, because yeah. I, there's enough anxiety going around. So if you can at least, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, get you something want, sorted. You, you want know. a creative environment. You want the environment that encourages and inspires, is what I would assume. as well because you are partly to blame for the fact that we do this podcast because I came to see you do a show at the Largo in LA mm. that's probably about seven eight years yeah. ago about seven, seven years, years ago, ago. 2010 something like that wasn't it and I watched that show and you did this wonderful thing where you'd asked fans to create visuals mm-hmm. to pieces of music from all manner of films that you've been involved in and I kind of sat there and thought, no one's talking about how wonderful all this music that we have in film is and kind of celebrating and talking about it and stuff. So thank you for that. It was awesome. No, it's my pleasure. I'm, it's funny because like, I sort of wanted to play live. I'd seen stuff like Mogwai and Godspeed, your Black Emperor. I'm kind of like, well, they've sort of influenced me in my film style, if you like. I mean, why couldn't we play this live? You know, But anytime we said to somebody about the idea, they just didn't get it at all, you know. And um, we did Union Chapel and we sold it out and people go, oh, okay. And then we did like those three nights at Lager. It was only like I was about 250 people. It was really small and intimate, awesome. wasn't it? But it was great, you know. And okay, it might not be the O2 Arena, but people are into it and people want it, you know. And cut to the Royal Festival Hall. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's grown really. You know, and Hans is touring now, and that's selling out, you know. And, and obviously, guys like Max Richter do it, you know. Oliver yeah. Arnold does it, also with his electronic other app, you know. So it, it just became a thing where you're going like, actually, people are looking for something, mm. something different, you know. It gives you a chance as well and, and us as fans to hear you talk about those specific pieces of music or yeah. influences of working with directors and Ben Wheatley kind of very brilliantly came and introduced you mm-hmm. and I mean let's talk about High Rise if, mm-hmm. if we can and, uh-huh. and that was a, a wonderful relationship and the results of that were fantastic. Yeah I mean that came at a very an awful period of my life you know um, I don't really sort of think about, oh, I'd like to work with so-and-so, I'd like to work with so-and-so, but I did want to work with Ben. And <laughs> yeah. I said it in an interview or something, and he got in touch, and he, he thought, you know, he, he liked my stuff, but he thought I would never think of working with him, you know. And like the first time we spoke, we were on, like, on Skype for like nearly two hours, you know, and <laughs> just talking about comics and movies and stuff, you know, just all stuff that we really liked. You know, I knew he was doing High Rise, and I not really grew up with Ballard, but Ballard was like, when I was at school in the late 70s, early 80s, he was like sort of, you know, the enfant terrible of, of British literature. 
true, if you yeah. like. You know, so even though it wasn't on the syllabus for me or whatever, but I was doing English lit and, that, and you, the teacher would give you sort of yeah. things to go and check out, you know. And as I said, I think growing up in the West Midlands in the 70s and 80s, it was a pretty Ballardian vibe anyway, <laughs> you know. And so this was like the dream gig. was when my girlfriend died and um i just backed out of everything you know it was just mm. uh you know as you can imagine it was a really hard yeah. period but um he uh, waited he, he waited yeah I came, well funny enough i came to england because you know i say just going my dad got cancer at the same time it was just a, it was just a horrible period of time yeah. you know thankfully that's all good now and um but i came over to, to see my dad and be with him and that so um me and carly carly parody who plays piano in um in my band but also is a film composer as well and you should get her on uh, the email's been sent okay cool um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Interstellar was opening and I thought, well, I wouldn't mind seeing that. I thought, well, go and see it at the IMAX, you know. So yeah. I said to Carly, said, I'm going to come down, do you want to go and see it? We went to see like a nine o'clock show in, <laughs> in, in nine o'clock in the morning, morning. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Saw that. And then I'd been talking to Ben, so I said, like, I'm going to be around. Why don't we just meet up? So I met him in the George on Wardour Street at one o'clock, you know. And, and we talked and got on great, you know. But um, eight pints later, I'm doing the film, you know, because he, <laughs> he goes like, you know, we just talk. And he says, well, what if we could wait for you, you know? He said, we're not under any real time constraints, you know. I mean, obviously, he wasn't talking wait forever. But I was thinking this was like early December at this point. I'm going, well, it's the new year. This is something I want to do. And, you know, I've got to do something. So, you know, Ben, he's a warm and cuddly Yeah, bloke, I was just know. about to say he gives good cuddles. Yeah, you know, and... Um, <laughs> And it was brilliant, you know, one of the best experiences I've had. I mean, and also as well within the film game, you know, there's not a lot of compassion and humanity. I was just blown away by uh, Ben's generosity and his empathy. Again, we'd, we didn't have a lot of money for that, but Ben came out to LA. I'd, I'd, we'd be sending stuff backwards and forwards. And then, well, yeah, let me talk about that, actually, because like, I think over the Christmas, I came back to spend some time with some folks at Christmas, yeah. but I went down and stopped with Ben for a couple of days in Brighton, and we just went through the film, talking about it. And, you know, Ben's obviously very musical. He got a lot of uh, needle drop in there, of, like kraut rock and stuff like that, that he loves, you know? And so you start figuring out how you're going to try and fit this in, what the score's going to be like around it, and where we can go dark, where it needs to be yeah. a bit more irreverent or whatever, you know?
So when I got back home to LA and I started the ideas, I would just send Ben three or four demos, but I'd also give him the stems, so he could break them out and he'd send them back to me in maybe in a different part of the movie or yeah. just rearranging it so we could go like, well, I need something to happen here. And we got this sort of easy shorthand going, you know, and once we'd got a solid basis, he came out and stayed in LA for about five or six days and we just went through the film. And by the time he was going home, the music wasn't done, but I knew what was missing and we were pretty much on course, you know, and it was just like... That's just the way I love to work, you know, and um, kind of not second-guessing one another. We haven't got to go and play it to somebody else and see if they get it. It's yeah. just between us, you know. That's sort of the crux of our like to work, really, you know. And um, I also think, you know, the whole experience working with Ben and what I'd been through just sort of, like, pushed me, you know. And I, I, I really, really like that score. I came up with something that felt different to what I'd done before, but totally right for the movie. Because, I mean, yeah. when we first talk, talked about it, you know, obviously we wanted to be like John Carpenter and that's what it's going to be, you know. But, <laughs> but you know, you, it, it wouldn't work like that but um, we had to sort of dig deep and find other ways into it but um, yeah we look forward to working with him again I hope hear those things together when you hear when you see the pictures and you hear the score and there's some really pretty moments to it that contradict what's going right. on or whatever and stuff yeah. and at what stage are you thinking about it and is he showing you what he's shot or is it just the script or is it an um, amalgamation of all of that yeah i mean i'd read the script i must admit i, I don't tend to go off scripts too much because they can change so yeah. much you know so it's you know it's, it, it just starts from a conversation of what the hell are we gonna do um <laughs> you know but, but for me like the best collaborations that I do and, and I think they're all collaborations with the director you know but the best collaborations for me are the ones that you end up somewhere that you never could have imagined getting to and you mm. certainly couldn't have got there on your own you know and that to me is then well I feel like we've really achieved something because I mean it's the same when I'm working on the music you've got the image you've got the music and like until you something happens between the two of them you suddenly when you suddenly have this third element that is I don't know what it is but it's there, you know, and, and that's what we're always looking for, what I'm, what I'm looking for. And it's the same with directors, you know, you, you get this coming together of, mm. of true creativity, if you like. You know? And I think that's why I probably prefer, I say smaller films, I just don't, I don't mean that because that sounds disparaging. I just mean films that, you know, maybe the director is totally in control of as opposed to a committee yeah. in control of. Because once you get to that committee stage, you know, and, and fair enough, you know, you've, you've had 10, 20, 200 million dollars of somebody's money, they've got a fair right to say what yeah. goes on in it, you know, because mm -hmm. it's an investment for them. But, uh, you know, I just prefer it when we're sort of left to our own devices, really, you know, and um, and, and see where it takes us. And with Ben and, and with Amy, I'm pretty much sure there's going to be somewhat of a through line, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not like, if it's developing, it's developing in an in a organic way, if you like, um, as opposed to like, well, the studio have decided it's all got to be like mandolin or something.
I feel like I could just bark film titles at you and wallow and enjoy the stories that you regale from them. I mean, you're back working, or you have already, you've done Mute with Duncan. Um, you guys obviously worked together on Moon, which was just the most exquisite and wonderful musical journey. Can you talk a little bit about that Moon soundtrack mm-hmm. and working on that with Duncan and yeah, yeah, I mean, how it was, you did it? I'd met Duncan... The band I was in split up in 96 and we did some shows, or 95, and we did some shows in 2005, which was great fun, I must admit, but um, I felt like if we'd have left it another week, I'd have been far too old. You know, I was just right <laughs> on the cusp, you know, just about got away with it. But Duncan came to one of those shows and, and I had the great fortune of interacting with his dad a little bit at one point, which is another oh, wow. story. Uh, Musically? We were going to, but it never happened, but it, I spent a, an amount of time with him that just blew wow. my mind because, I mean, David Bowie was the reason I, I wanted to make music you know so meeting him all those years later was really special you know but I'd sort of crossed paths with Duncan we had mutual friends I'd say this is 2005 and then probably 2007 2008 uh, I got a call saying um, oh I've got a script here from somebody called Duncan Jones and I'm going like I know that name why do I know that name <laughs> oh that's David Bobson good lord yeah anyway I got the script and I still think to this day it's the best script I've ever read it just had everything I love what is it to be human you know yeah. loneliness the need for connection, you know. Before I'd even spoke to Duncan, I wanted to do it, you know. Again, you know, you just get these little ones that are just magical, really, where pretty much everything I wrote was it. Yeah, there were a few pieces where oh, I'm not so sure, about it, but it just all worked. sort of says to me that it's easy to score a good film it's very very difficult to score a film that's not very good or doesn't work because because yeah. musically you're enforcing or supporting yeah. what's on screen if, if it's a bit of a mess or the story doesn't make much sense I can't do the job I like to do anyway I like the idea of if you just listen to the music on its own you, you still get the story of what's yeah. happening on screen you know and you get these people that go like oh the best scores the ones you never notice I'm going like well why can there only be one sort of score, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Many, many different ways of approaching a film to, and scoring it. You know, you look at Edgar with Baby Driver now, you know, it's just different ways of doing totally. things. That, that, or, you know, or Roy Hans did Dunkirk. Totally different approaches to mm-hmm. music and film. Both of them fantastic. So, I, I, you know, I'm just about, like, trying to find me in, in those films, in that music, and um, that film... It's just beautiful. I still love that music to this day, you know, and when we play it live, you know, people obviously connect to it. Were you there at filming? Were you part no, of that? No, no, no. I, di- I didn't uh, I didn't come on board till they were in post. But obviously, you know, we had knowledge of the film ahead of the audience, you know, figuring out what was going on with Sam Bell and that. So we could do these subliminal things, like when <laughs> Duncan said to me, he said, like, he said, because Duncan never really went down the musical path. I guess if your dad's David Bowie going, you know, I think, tough I, think, to follow. I think he's got it covered, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? But he said to me, he said, the one thing his dad said to him, he said, if you ever want to do anything weird, just play something backwards, he said, you know. So Duncan <laughs> said to me, can we do something backwards? <laughs> and um, we decided to do it when uh, Sam Bell has the crash 
but we don't know he's still out there and then he comes back so when, yeah. when he comes back in the music is playing backwards from when he went out if you like you know so we just had fun with it like that And I also love a film that you can watch repeatedly and yeah. go like, you know, and, and Moon is that, you know, and... Uh, you find new things yeah. every time you watch it. Yeah, you do, you know, and, and I, I, I know for certain I probably didn't grab all the sensitivities and sensibilities of it, you know. But that's but also nice because that allows the audience to do that. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Rather than feeding them everything, I think that's what's a good partnership in both a director and a composer where yeah. not everything is kind of handed to you. Yeah, and you don't, you know, you don't want to be heavy-handed or whatever, but there are moments when you want to hit it harder mm -hmm. or whatever, you know. But like I say, a film that um, that the director and the editor have got under control and is making sense, and you know, your job becomes so much easier because mm. if the story's confused, we're going to be confused. <laughs> There'll be certain scenes when the director will go like, oh, I'm not really confident about this scene, I need a bit of help. The right music can help every scene. Even if it turns out to be silent, he'll go like, that actually really helps, you know? Yeah, because that can be as, as, yeah. as important as yeah. hearing a piece of score or a needle drop. Where you choose to use your silence is, it's all choreographing to me, you know, it's sort of arrangement, that's what it is, you know. So it's time and space and punctuation, I suppose. I mean, it is a very literary language when we're working in film, you know, because like I say we're there to support the story, you know. 12.50, press return. But I love your story and how you're doing this now and, you know, you're not classically trained. It's emotion, it's a feeling and it's a connection with the film. Mm -hmm. So that in itself definitely comes across in your compositions and that it's about emotion and it's about a connection. Well, yeah, you know, when I, um, to this day, I can't do some of those things, you know. I don't wish to make it a sort of a point of pride or anything, but like, after I left my band, 
and I was sort of in limbo for ages. I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd wrote a lot of stuff, but I couldn't finish anything. I was very depressed and skint, you know, which um, never helps. But um, that's when I met Darren. And doing Pi, I suddenly discovered that whilst, you know, you write music for a film, you'd think that's actually somewhat limiting. Mm -hmm. But the reality of that framework really gives you structure. And within that framework, you can kind of do anything you like as long as it serves the film, if you like. So it was actually very liberating, you know. And also a film like that, obviously Darren wasn't looking for the Hollywood score, so I could sort of rely on my influences, if you like, of electronic music and the way that is, you know, and it worked. With Requiem, I found ways to solve problems that I couldn't do, not musically, but because I'm not classically trained, I had to look for different ways of doing mm -hmm. things, you know, and um, that sort of worked. problem I'd been having when I was just working say without the framework of film was I was going like why doesn't my stuff sound as good as the Chemical Brothers or the Prodigy or something and I was trying to do something along those lines in all, in all honesty but you know the fact that I couldn't do it eventually and then I started putting things to picture and it sort of worked I'm going like actually you know what your strength is being you you know not trying to be the chems or or anybody yeah. you know or hands or whatever it is you know and to this day I, I occasionally do talks for young composers and i sort of reference two films and uh one of them is uh enter the dragon and there's a scene where bruce lee is just training the young grasshopper to fight and he's going to him don't think feel you know or feel as he says you know <laughs> yeah. and that's it don't think about it feel it you know and that's what I, when i'm doing something i couldn't tell you oh i'm looking for this i'm looking for that i'm going like hmm I feel good now, that's working. For some reason, that has now come together. I, I, I feel it, you know. Yeah. And, and then the other film I reference is Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. And um, there's a scene where he's going to work the first morning at the Duke Brothers and he's got Denham Elliott as his butler. <laughs> and Eddie Murphy's like, he doesn't really know what's going on. He's been 
plucked off the streets. He's now a suit on. He's going to work. And he says, well, he says to Denon Elliott, what should I do? And Denon Elliott says, just be yourself, sir. They can't take that away from you, you know. And that's what I say. It's like, if you want to be a composer, you know, and you can say, well, I want to be Hans Zimmer. I go, like, well, you know, there's probably already 200 guys in front of you that are trying to be Hans Zimmer. They're probably better at being Hans Zimmer than you are, you know. Mm. Your best bet is being you. Yeah. Because that's not anything anybody else has got. That's why I don't really like bigger films as such, because I, it tends to have to fulfill a certain yeah. thing, you know, which I understand and all that sort of stuff. But I want to hear different voices, yeah. people doing different things, and me going, damn. really unique in that there's not two films of yours that sound the same you challenge yourself every time you look at Requiem for a Dream which I listened to yesterday and you know how you were saying it, the sound of I think the sign of a good soundtrack is when you yeah. just hear the music and you see pictures yeah. that's a great example and the recurrence of themes in that mm -hmm. as well that was something that uh, when I first met Darren he gave me this book and a guy that can never remember the guy's name. It's a famous book. In fact, it, it's so long ago now, I think the book might be a bit of a cliche, but it's called The Writer's Journey. And, and what it's doing is basically letting you know of how a story works, you know, and like every film has a car chase in it, even if there's not a car chase in it, there's an equivalent of that sort of mm. moment, you know. And so, you know, I started to understand what, in, in very broad strokes, don't get me wrong, I would never think that I'd know it all, but Darren and I would go through each scene and we'd be like sort of very almost intellectual about it, go, okay, Jared Leto's character, Harry Goldfarb is on screen, so it's a Harry theme, or Jennifer's yeah. character, so it's a Jennifer theme. And so we'd roughly do that and then we'd watch the film knowing that. But then we go, actually, even though Jennifer's on screen, this scene is about somebody else. You yeah. know, so okay, we'll put that music in there and see. Well, that still doesn't quite work, but it, it, it you know, you start yeah. building it up like that so that you have these recurring themes going on that are helping sort of reinforce the story. Because, particularly with that, you know, the main theme from Requiem, because we had the cards come down, you know, of, of, of winter and all that sort of stuff, it felt like this sort of like brutal sort of reminder of how terrible things were going. <laughs> And Requiem actually was a nightmare for us because um, we'd done pie and that had worked and mm -hmm. we're thinking, okay, we can do this, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, Darren had wanted to do Requiem because he grew up in Brooklyn and he'd wanted it to reflect the music of his life, which was basically hip-hop, KRS-One, Boogie yeah. Down Productions type stuff, you know. And he had this idea, which to some degree we later resurrected for Black Swan, but it was the idea to take pre-existing music and repurpose it in the film. And yeah. um, we explored it a little bit and he sent me one scene and it was uh, the scene after 
uh, Ellen Burstyn's character first takes the, the speed or whatever it is, you know, the, um, the diet pills, and she's cleaning the apartment. It's all sped up because she's like, and then it wears off and, and she slows down, you know. And he put under it, um, she watched Channel Zero by Public Enemy, and it was awesome. The woman makes the men all pause, and if you got a woman, she might make you forget yours. There's a five letter word to describe her character, but her brain's being washed by an actor. And every real man that tries to approach comes a close to comes, it gets just like a rope. I don't think I can handle it, she goes channel to channel, oh, looking for that hero. She watched Channel Zero. But we looked at it and go like, well, you know what? It's actually just cool. It doesn't actually say anything, yeah. you know. So then we were kind of screwed because go, oh, we've sort of given ourselves a problem because we'd recognised there was a problem there. Now we've got to solve the problem. We had no idea how to do it, you know. And um, <laughs> at the start of the project, I'd read the script and I'd just sent down a, a, a CD of about 20 little ideas, you know. And most of them were leaning towards the type of thing we'd been thinking prior to shooting which was yeah. sort of hip-hop and whatever you know and none of them were really working at that point and um i was living in new orleans and he came down for sort of a long weekend to sort of work with me on the music and we didn't really know where we were going it wasn't working at all and we didn't i i didn't have the experience to solve it and he probably didn't either really so we were worried you know anyway about i don't know halfway through the saturday or something we were going through this cd and we came to this piece of music that was something like about track 17 or 18 yeah. on the very inconsequential, you know. And um, we just tried lining it up. And the scene we lined it up with is the scene where uh, Marion has slept with the psychiatrist for the money. And the storm that's been developing throughout the film breaks as she comes out of the apartment. And she's got the snorry cam on her. And, and we put this piece of music on it. And it was, I mean, I've got, it sounds pathetic, but I've got goosebumps now because Aww. I can remember the moment. It was just like, Oh my God! It's I'd back never to that emotion. Yeah, I'd never seen anything. I, neither of us had. It was kind of, like, oh my God! And it was so. I mean, obviously, as you know, the the piece is pretty heavy, and I don't think we'd ever sort of really thought about it being that heavy, if you like, that intense. But it just was like, oh my God! And then then we basically put that piece on every pivotal scene in the movie, and it was just like, oh my God! And we'd got it, you know. Yeah. And it was uh, like I say, we didn't wow. really know what we were looking for, but it was there you know and that's been always the key for me it's like I, I want to get that emotion that yeah. something marries between the picture and the music like I say you get this third element yeah that doesn't exist without the two of them combining and yeah seductive drug at that point you know <laughs> um I mean, many people might argue I've never done it since, but, uh, you know, hey, if I've <laughs> I only disagree. done it once... If I've only I done it, disagree. Well, if I've only done it once, I'm still, I'd still be happy about it, you know what I mean?
you mentioned briefly Black Swan there, having existing music that has to be part of that story because it's that world that you're yeah. entering and how you approach that to not just rely on that and to bring something else to it. I had actually been to see Matthew Bourne's uh, Swan Lake a couple of years before I even knew Darren was doing uh, yeah. Black Swan. In fact, it was just after The Fountain I'd seen it. Anyway, I'd seen Swan Lake and I was going, oh, I'd love to do something like that. <laughs> I didn't quite know what I meant by that. I didn't know if I meant, oh, well, I want to do a ballet or what, you know, but it was very inspiring to mm. me, you know. When he came up with the idea of Black Swan, we talked about it. And I go, oh, well, it's got to be the music from Swan Lake, really, because she's going to be rehearsing to it all day. It's going to be driving her insane. And you know what it's like if you've heard a mealworm going, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it transforms in your head, you know, it becomes something else, it becomes a real irritant. this music has got to be driving a nuts that's what it's got to be you know and I'm going well obviously we can't just play Swan Lake all the way through but there's going to be pivotal moments when of course we're going to be hearing the big pieces but I got the entire score transcribed and I just went through every element of it just finding a bar or two bars that I liked and often got a four bar piece I'd take out a lot of notes because like Tchaikovsky probably writes more notes than me you know and uh, <laughs> but I'd find I'd find bits in there that I thought sounded like me and if I looped them and then I wrote yeah. something on top of them but it's all was from the genesis of, uh, of Swan Lake it's all that music but it's haunting her and yeah. terrorizing her and tormenting her and then you know when you get to the night of terror it's just the whole bit you know and then finally we're on stage and she dances it there was no other place you could go with it, it had to be that and then um, we recorded black swan here and we had a huge orchestra fox that bought the film by that point because we had no money wow. so everybody turned it down when darren was as most of his films we were always turned down by people you know but <laughs> um i don't know how much he got but he got enough to make it we had nothing for the score and like, the head of fox music at the time was a guy called robert Kraft who recognized what we were doing and said if you're going to be playing swan late to people it's got to be as good or if not better than they've ever heard it other places because you're just going to lose them <laughs> money together for us to come here and do it as i said we had about an 80 piece orchestra but the moment they start playing stuff from from swan lake it sounds so different from anything i've ever written because like tchaikovsky wrote for those instruments and those players have played it probably a million times and it was just like took your eyebrows off it was oh, so good man. you know it's beautiful and also as well one of the easiest things i've done they didn't really have to write anything you know <laughs> <laughs> i just oh. stood, stood back and looked good
I mean, my record collection at home features so many of your soundtracks on vinyl, which are just a lovely thing to have, and they stand on their own as wonderful pieces of music. Well, you know, another reason I work here at uh, Air is because Jeff Foster is the head engineer and recording mixer. Matt Dunkley works here, he's my orchestrator. They're both so good in understanding film music and understanding what the picture needs. Even, you know, when I've written the stuff, they can help me shape it, deliver it further, you know. And then once we've done that, uh, between Jeff and I, we, we then take all the cues and rework them it was it was actually a requiem for a dream that um when we when we did the release of that it was basically just the tracks from the film which in that instance i think works yeah here's where the ego comes in i was checking the reviews on amazon <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of them said you know it stops and it starts i wish it was more of a listen and stuff like this and I'm like well yeah i, I get that but uh-huh. i think with requiem it served its purpose but yeah. when we came to do the fountain i thought and again this was like from having seen mogwai and godspeed you know mm-hmm. And like, you know what, we, we, we can do this better, you know. And so we, we, you know, I mean, in the fountain, we've got like, you know, I don't know, 90 minutes of music in it or something. So Jeff and I went through it and just like broke up the themes and made it into a more traditional listen, for one of a better phrase. It becomes like an LP, yeah. 10 tracks, 45 minutes, whatever. And yeah, there might be stuff that doesn't make it onto the record, but you get something that really represents it. And it's actually something that you can get into, if you like. Like I say, something like Mogwai and Godspeed have sort of brought the indie rock crowd, for want of a better phrase, towards film music, yeah. and my film music has probably brought it towards the indie rock, whatever, you know. But you've had this sort of slight meshing of these worlds, you know, and um, yeah, I've got to be honest, I mean, when, we, when we play live... Do you love it? I absolutely love it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when we did the uh, when we did the Royal Festival Hall last, but um, which was absolutely fantastic, but the last show of the tour we did was um, in Glasgow, and... That was a show that we'd had to cancel when, when Heather died. But I always wanted to go back. People yeah. had kept their tickets and stuff like that. And we, we managed to sort of work a date with these other shows we were doing. And um, on the day, I was really emotional, you know. I knew it was going to be a big thing for me. And I didn't really know what to do. And funny enough, I went into the... Because there's like four or five girls at any different time in my band, you know. So they tend to have a room to themselves and all us boys are in another room, you know. So I went into the <laughs> girls' room to have a, a private moment and I was a bit teary and I, and I, I said, I don't really know. And they sort of quoted myself back at me, just go out there, be yourself. So I went out and said, well, thanks for coming and thanks for waiting for us. Thanks for holding on to your tickets. I really appreciate, you know, we wanted to come back and I'm sorry we didn't play before. But the reason we didn't play was because my girlfriend had died and I just said, I'd love it if you would just join with us tonight in a celebration of her life. And the place erupted. Wow. It was unbelievable to be honest and I suppose you could say it's the power of music or it's the power of connection you know but I just finished Black Mirror before we started those shows and I was in a really poor place but those dates but that show particularly in Glasgow just it was like it sort of gave me this extra lift over whatever part of my grieving I was you know and things have actually been a lot better since that night it was it was I've never known, a, I mean, I've done a lot of gigs with my band back in the pop itself, yeah. but I've never known an experience like it. It was incredible. To be in that room where people have come to listen to the sound we make, but for them to sort of give it back to me was just mind-blowing. Clint, thank you so much for your time and your honesty and your chat and your brilliance. (laughs) If only you could hear the conversations, because that's what I loved when we left the Royal Festival Hall, was the conversations that you were having yourself, but also you were hearing people having, and you know, similarly helping people the same way that you were helped. 
Actually, we were in Paris and uh, I had a woman come and talk to me and she'd had cancer and she'd recovered, but she said, you know, the thing that had got her through was the fountain, you know. You hear these things and you kind of like, really talking about me or... I don't know what other people are like, but I'm probably quite... Well, you know, we're British alike, you know. We've got to be, <laughs> you know, got to be sort of self-deprecating about whatever it is yeah. we do, you know. So even though I love it and I'm very proud of it, you know, to meet people that it means so much to and has helped, it's really humbling, you know. Don't underestimate the power of what you do. No, well, thank you very much. And keep being you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks very much. Clint. Cheers. From Clint Mansell's score to The Fountain, that's The Last Man, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking. My huge thanks to Clint for taking the time to talk to us and everyone at London's Air Studios. It feels like we've barely scratched the surface, so we will endeavour to get him back for part two soon. You can find a full track list for this show via our dedicated Spotify page, which features the pieces we played in the order they appeared iTunes or edithbowman.com is the place to subscribe and catch up with all of our previous episodes. The list of guests is pretty impressive if we do say so ourselves. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do tell your friends about us if you like what you hear. We're back next week discussing more movies and music with the great and good of the film world. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.